Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm discussing detachment and the story of my name. I have gained so much freedom from the Buddhist teaching of detachment. In our Western culture, I find that the word detachment, it feels rude, it feels cold, it feels dismissive, like a middle finger held high to someone we care about. So our first introduction to this concept of detachment is very naturally often resistance and negative judgment. This negative judgment of detachment blocks us from benefiting from its wisdom. I want to try to break down the tool and power of detachment for a highly sensitive person through sharing a progression story, a unique life experience that I've had because detachment is essential in managing our high sensitivity because our high sensitivity leads us to easily, not just care, but overcare. It leads us to not just think, But to overthink, to not just consider what other people think or feel in a sense of consideration, but to spin on it, to obsess on it, to wear ourselves out, to not just feel, to overfeel. And before any of you gasp and say, oh, Nikki, nothing is wrong with whatever I feel. It's what I feel. I challenge that a bit. Because if you are emotionally and mentally exhausted, as so many highly sensitive people or trauma survivors are, then it's not noble or wise to continue over-functioning or unnecessarily emoting or having even a kind of addiction to intensity of feeling and overdoing over-functioning. As big feelers, we likely need, and I mean need, to understand detachment, what it is, how to do it with respect for ourselves and each other. Alanon says to detach with love. And we can learn how to do that. Sometimes for the sake of sanity, we really do need to let go, to be done, to be finished, to let go, to detach. The very first podcast that I ever guested on 
was the Highly Sensitive Person podcast. It's no longer releasing current episodes, but it's there if you want to go listen. The topic that blew up and really encouraged me to do this whole podcasting thing was narcissist and highly sensitive people and how we as highly sensitive people draw narcissists in. So if you have a pattern in your life of attracting and bonding to low empathy, low insight people who become energy vampires in your life, consider if detachment is the very practice that can set you free and provide a real strategy for how to let go. Here is a story of how I was forced by life to learn detachment. Now, it wasn't fun. It wasn't easy. And in the way that some of our lessons are forced by life, now that I'm on the other side, I'm grateful for that forcing. But while I've been in the forcing, I have never been grateful for it. And I suspect that's true for many of you, too. I share this story to help you learn this available life lesson with hopefully, fingers crossed, more ease than I did. And in this episode, and I believe everything in life that you can learn from another person, take what works for you and leave the rest. New listeners, I very much believe in the power of learning through story, which has been the main way humans have passed down wisdom and knowledge and sharing over time. The details in our stories can be very different. And yet the underlying emotion is where and how we connect and grow from the shared wisdom and experience of others. So thank goodness we don't have to experience every single thing in this life to learn from it when we open to learning from the wisdom of others and the experience of others. I use my life because I have had an absurd amount of experiences and I have to believe rather I choose to believe that these experiences guided me all the way to here to answer this calling that I have felt to help others find peace. And this is a story I've never shared before. I have had five last names. Five. Right now, as I say this, I am 42 years old. That means I have had more than one different name per decade of my life. It's a lot. Betticholi, Henderson, Derry, and you know me by Eisenhower. And privately, I'm legally changing my private last name to that of my husband's, Lupertazzi. And I hope to never change it again. That, that's a whole lot of names. I'm using fake names, but similar sounding names to share this story with you just to minimize and discourage some identity theft. In the story of my names, I want you to know that it's so natural for us to be attached to our given name. Women who get married and make the choice to change their name, we can feel all the things. We can grieve the birth name that we were given, even while we're excited to take on a new name. Or increasingly, it's popular for a woman to marry and not change her name too. Name changing can hold up interesting mirrors to our own experiences and beliefs and attachments and value systems, and that's all okay. It's okay for us all to do it a little differently. Humans are going to human, y'all, and we are never all going to agree on what's right because 
there isn't one thing that's right for all of us. It's what makes us rich and varied and different. I was born to a teenage mother who was basically forced to marry my biological father because she was pregnant with me. My biological father is Italian and I was born Nikki Betticholi. I remember intensely practicing writing this very difficult for a little girl name and saying my name at four years old. I would practice and practice and practice saying it and writing it. I felt proud to have this name. I was proud that it sounded so different than all of my cousins and kids at school as I got a little older. My Italian grandfather of the same name had inherited a more than 100-year-old business in New Orleans with the name Betticholi Seafood, a wholesale seafood dispensary in Louisiana on the Gulf Coast that fishing regulations forced into closure in the 1990s. But when I was a child through the 80s and the early 90s, I grew up seeing my own last name, that business logo for that business, on delivery trucks that were delivering to restaurants all over town. So from toddlerhood to adolescence, I would wave at trucks and say, hi, Poppy. That's what I called my Italian grandfather. And in the language of today, right, we hear the word identity constantly. I strongly identified with the Italian customs and traditions, the food, the flair, the colorfulness. I I felt a deep part of something bigger than myself, which side note is what all identity is really going for, to feel a part of something to which we belong. And this belonging holds us during hardship. It tethers ourselves to who we are so that the stressful waves that life sometimes sends in our direction doesn't wash us out to sea. My parents separated when I was six and dragged out a divorce for seven years and I'm sure there are some high-profile, high-money divorces that may take many years to sort assets and finances and agreements. But for two people who didn't have anything, no retirement plans, no nothing, no money, no nothing, and both didn't want custody but also didn't want to lose custody to the other and wanted to win, dragging a basic divorce out for seven years has got to be some kind of Guinness Book of World Records. I felt like my entire younger childhood was consumed with their extended divorce and fighting. Between the ages of 7 to 10, my biological father seemed to get a PhD in how to be a deadbeat dad. Sadly, stereotypically, promising to pick me up for visitation and flaking over and over and over again. And yes, I had some pretty wicked attachment trauma to work through as he fully bailed on my life by the time I was 10. When I was nine, my future stepfather and future abuser, who I ultimately put in prison as an adult, came into my life and he jumped at filling the void and filling that wound that my biological father that I had been very bonded with because my mother fits an ice queen type of description. So as a little girl, my father was the warmest person I had. So when he left, I felt a tremendous abandonment and hurt that left a massive wound. And a child predator knows how to show up and fill that wound. It's a hard truth to acknowledge and certainly was not my fault in any way, 
But my situation plus high sensitivity was really and truly a sexual predator's utopia. It's a child abuser's Powerball jackpot to walk into a situation like mine. My mom and my then stepdad, as they married, married right before I turned 12. And my mom and my stepdad used that year to emotionally manipulate me into asking him to adopt me and my siblings. So by 13, I did ask. And by 14, I was adopted. This meant that my biological father was tracked down by an officer of the court. And he had to make the choice to sign his rights away if we were to be adopted. So at the ages of 14, 11, and 9, our biological father signed all three of his children away, giving up all parental rights. Now, I had put this into motion as a young teenager, a tween, and yet I was still devastated and torn. I both wanted to be loved by the dad that was right in front of me that was showing up for me, he would say things to me like, God brought us together so I could be your dad and you could be my daughter. It was intoxicating to someone who had been abandoned by their father. An underpinning manipulation to this whole adoption story is that his two biological children were in another state. The story pitched to me at the time was that his ex-wife was a wicked, wicked witch that ripped his children away from him, this willing father. Now, as an adult, I'd find out that that was not the story. He was accused of molesting them and deemed unsafe for kids and was not allowed to see them without supervision. My biological father was choosing to detach from me. And I hadn't understood what that was going to do to me, how that was going to impact me psychologically as part of this adoption. I basically asked my own biological father, or at least set it in motion, to be rejected by him again. I detached before I knew what that word was. I detached from the hurt of it. I pulled back. I shut down. This is also why we have some negative associations with detachment in our culture, because we tend to not detach until something burns us, like like touching a, to- a hot stove and then pulling our hand back really fast So we associate detachment with something wrong and something bad and something hurtful. And certainly we detach in those moments, but it's not the only time we can detach and it's not the only way we can use detachment as a tool. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. 
but like a wounded animal that goes to hide in a hole to lick wounds and try to heal. That was the best way I knew how to detach back then. I detached from my biological father. I detached from my world. I pulled inward. I felt singular. There was abuse going on that my mind was blocking from me. So I was also in some ways detaching from myself. Ultimately, I decided to let go of all of what my biological dad was to me, even his name. After all, at the time growing up, I knew as a, as a girl growing up in a traditional household that I'd lose my Italian last name when I married anyway. And this was a way for me at 14 to decide, okay, I'm going to be empowered. This was the closest I knew how to get to an empowered personal choice. Everything that had happened between me and my father was about me being powerless. This was a way for me to enact some power in my own life. This biological father wanted to detach from me. So in my adolescent consciousness, so be it. I'd let the name go too, was my thinking. He abandoned me and assigned me away. Why grip the name? And I let go. I detached. My stepdad's last name, now adopted dad's last name, was very vanilla in comparison. I went from a colorful, unusual name to essentially Smith with Henderson at 14. I was unprepared for the reaction from my peers at school. I didn't even consider how the other kids, my peers, would react to me having a name change at 14. Like I said a moment ago, my background was that I was also being molested during this time, but my memories were blocked. And that's still a controversial thing in psychology, repressed memories. When I learned about repressed memories, my memories were still repressed, believe it or not. I thought it sounded like crap, too, when I learned about it. Like, how can that be possible? How could something happen to you and you not know? That's just trying to be in denial. Repression isn't real. But I'm here to say it happened to me. So I very much believe in repressed memories being real. On some level, my subconscious, of course, knew of the abuse, and so did my body. I held tremendous anxiety and shame in this body and a constant level 10 tension. I couldn't connect the dots of why that tension was so high and so constant. I just thought I was fundamentally screwed up. As my name changed, the kids at school spread rumors and made jokes to my face and some behind my back that I had married someone at 14. And today, jokes like that would roll off of my back so easily but back then, it mortified me. It mortified me on the surface, and it mortified me beneath the surface in ways I couldn't explain to myself or about myself or to anybody else. My parents thought this was a funny ha-ha thing that was happening. So I detached from what my peers thought about me and sort of accidentally accepted that I was weird. The detachment strategy was good intuition on my part. It was good intuitive self-care. The problem wasn't in the detachment and the letting go. The problem was mostly that my critical voice was a grade A bully back then and talked to me constantly about how wrong and bad and weird in a bad way, shameful, imperfect, and broken I was. 
I used the things that adults did or didn't do around me to be proof of something being wrong with me. And that is not unique to me, Nikki, the person. That is how our human psychology works, particularly as we are growing up into who we will be as adults. As a side note, this is why it's beneficial for many of us who grew up with adult chaos and immaturity and poor decisions or manipulation to work on repairing our own relationship to our own intuition. In the story I'm sharing today, there's an example right here from my life in both following good intuition, which kind of feels like one good step forward, but then letting the bully, the critical voice in me, chime in, which danced to me backwards one step. This made me feel psychologically like life was an endless, exhausting dance, one step forward, one step back, that didn't get me anywhere else than standing in this one spot of difficulty and of confusion and of shame and of low self-worth. I felt stuck. I grieved my special, complicated Italian birth name that new teachers always had to ask me how to pronounce. And I felt less special with my vanilla Henderson name. At 22, almost 23, I married for the first time and had a highly toxic marriage. That's no surprise. I continued, as so many of us do, because it's how our human psychology works, to be drawn into what I knew instead of what was good for me. My grandparents, who had been my functional parents, also died when I was 15 and 17. So when I met my first husband when I was 17 years old, I was really raw. I left high school completely lost and depressed, my worth on the ground, feeling ground into the ground. I couldn't feel lower. I felt at the time like my backbone had been taken out of my body and beaten like someone flattens a pork chop or a chicken breast before cooking and then put that smushed up spine back into my body. I felt like a doormat. I changed my name then, went through a divorce. At 32, I married my second husband and took the name you know me by, Eisenhower. And it will remain my name publicly, in part because my now husband, Chris, who produces the show, encourages me to do that because that's how y'all know me. We've put all this content out with this name. By this time in my life, some of my long-term friends would lovingly say to me, when are you just going to be Nikki, like Cher or Madonna? And yep, that was a spot-on joke. Now, two years ago, I married the love of my life when I was 40. And in my personal life, have changed my name to this, Lupertazzi. Each time I have left a name or have had a name taken from me, by life, I have grieved. I've looked at who I was when I took on that name versus who I was as I let that name go. If you've listened to an episode from this year called You Might Be an Existentialist, you will hear me talk about how we are so much more than anything we could ever add after the words I am. I am not these names, y'all. And that's what this experience forced me to do, to detach from my names. The names do not define me. There is a freedom in detachment, in processing the grief of what 
once was and is now lost and learning to let go when it serves us. There are certainly times to hold on when it serves. And as highly sensitive people, we often are strong in the holding on department, especially if we've lost a lot in this lifetime. We may have an inner child who wants to grip just to grip because letting go means having to let go and change. And we might be weary. We might be tired. We might be raw if we've had a tough life till now. These letting go lessons have taught me that I can detach when it serves me. And now I can detach with less angst, less confusion, more self-care, more intention, more self-respect, and I can move through to the other side of any detachment pain more quickly with more ease than ever before. I am so much more than anything that could ever happen to me. I am so much more than any name I could ever be given or taken. Each year of my life embodying who I am instead of what I'm called or what I identify with becomes more of a gift. And it's a gift available to all of us as we get older. And the only thing we have to do to integrate this type of life lesson as a gift is as we get older, we open up to taking the lessons offered by life, by our experience, by the universe, by the choices we make and the choices we don't make, there's an organized chaos that we call this life. And when we make meaning, that is what grows us. That's what lines us up and brings us to what is next. And when we're gripping, when we're attaching ourselves to what no longer serves us because we're so frightened to detach, we're stalling out our next season. If you'd like to take this episode further, here are some thinking or journaling questions to consider. Is there something in your life either dropping hints or flat out asking or even forcing you to let go? What if you detached with self-respect and love as a practice? Must there be struggle when letting go? Is it okay to make a change to let go or detach before being at the struggle point? Is it okay to have more ease in the process of doing things you don't want to have to do? Or should it be as struggle bus as possible? How many times do you think you've had to let go in this life already? The big and the small. I have to let go every day, all day, all kinds of things, big and small. Is a letting go and or detachment muscle one that you want to make strong in this life? What happens if you don't work on that letting go detachment muscle? And what happens if you do? I want to invite you to join the Patreon at the two, five, ten, or $20 monthly subscription fee to help us reach our goal of 350 people. We're pretty close. And when we reach that goal, everyone on Patreon will be invited to our first live cinema soul care event where we come together to learn and grow through a movie watching experience and group journaling session. The last live stream Q&A was a really big hit, y'all. It gave me goosebumps. Some of you have told me that you've already listened to it on repeat multiple times. When y'all show up with your energy, it energizes me. And what we make together is no less than magic. When you join the Patreon, part of what we do is we give you a shout out. So I want to spend some time 
naming our Patreon supporters of the show. I want to thank Rebecca, Jennifer, Susan, Dave, Jen and Jamie, Yeti, Sarah May, Joe, Rach, Holly, Heather, Shannon, Alexa, and Damian. Look for the next episode that's coming out right after this one next week on how to detach with love. If you are into binging my episodes, like some of you tell me, the next exclusive episode on our Patreon is the 65th exclusive episode that you cannot find anywhere else. I do get more personal in there. And at times, my husband even comes on the show. There have been a couple of those episodes, and I know how much y'all love being able to hear him and his voice and his perspective. So to check out more of what we offer and join the community where we are healing and being the change in the world, come join at patreon.com backslash emotional badass. You'll get all of our exclusive content. You'll get the best coupon codes for every other thing that I offer, the Boundaries course included, and the Boundaries course is now open. So if you want to join the Boundaries course 2023, come find out more and sign up, secure your spot, light and love, and let's hit 350 in our Patreon so we can have our movie night together. And may the tool of detachment give you more peace and more ease as we let go and detach. Very important tools for highly sensitive people to navigate this world. I'm an emotional badass. You're an emotional badass. And together, we are where Moxie meets mindful. Light and love. And I'll see you right here next time. find it hard to sleep at night then the sleep cove podcast can help you hi i'm christopher fitton the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind sleep cove sleep cove features sleep hypnosis meditations and bedtime stories all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep search for sleep cove on apple podcasts or spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.